Today we were going to talk about uh, communion, and uh, communion is the perfect um, sermon. Uh, communion is the, um, the very thing you need to be reminded of, not just weekly at church, but daily. Uh, communion, uh, as one author says, is the world in miniature. And talking about grief uh, or mourning, it is the place of mourning and of grief and of joy. And the Christian life is really a mixture of grief and joy, of mourning and crying, an indescribable uh, joy and love that fills your heart. And it happens simultaneously. And really, one does not happen without the other. You cannot have one without the other. Uh, I am tend, to, tend to be a glasses half full kind of person, and I come to church just excited, you know, just to meet with people and just to uh, let's get some stuff done, you know. Uh, I also show up to my average meeting with someone or even come home most evenings just like, yeah, okay, here we go. What's going to happen now? And, uh, and so I'm not a person that has... Uh, would naturally come ready to mourn or grieve. I'm a person that 20 years ago would have heard what I heard on Friday on the news, and it would have un- I would have not been moved by it. Um, now, obviously, if it was really close to home, and certainly if it was uh, my family, I'd be crushed by it, like it would be natural. Uh, but I think that some of us, our glasses half empty, think mourning, I mean, is optional. And it's not in the Christian life. It's not. Those of us uh, that see the glass as half empty uh, tend to be more pessimistic as a whole, uh, see joy as a show or parade, and uh, doesn't really get into the depths of life until you really engage with the depths of pain. And there's certainly a lot to that, but even in the midst of that, sometimes those people have trouble recognizing joy or accepting joy. Christianity, and especially communion, is the world in miniature. It is joy mixed with sorrow. Uh, Christians should grieve. Uh, I was reminded this week, um, a friend of mine and I wrote, read a little booklet on grief for different reasons, for personal losses we've recently had. Uh, and I was reminded that Christians should grieve more deeply than anyone else. And the reason why is, is because we know why. People right now in Connecticut and across the country, whatever news channel or whatever, they're always asking why and what's the motive. And, of course, we want to know why uh, and, and what's the motive on the micro level, but Christians have the answers on the macro level because we know death is not a part of life. It is now, but it was never intended to be. I should say it that way. It's never intended to be a part of life. Christians should know that the way the world was created God never intended death. In fact, he warned specifically Adam and Eve against don't touch that tree because therein lies death, and there's no need for that. Um, The interesting thing is uh, we have the answers. We know sin and death. We know ultimately that evil exists. Uh, We believe it. It is the fabric. It is the bad news that sets up the good news. And the good news is that we have indescribable joy and presence with God and in the midst of the sorrow, not aside from it. So, sidestepping the bad news is not the way to go. 
but rather going through it and finding the good news in the midst of the bad news, finding the joy in the midst of the sorrow. That's what it's really about. Christians should grieve more than anyone else, and Christians should have joy deeper, more profound, more exciting joy than anyone else because we know God with us. And we know that we are moving to a history, a future time, that is better than the original garden. In the original garden, he said, don't touch that tree. In the future time, there is no such thing. In the future time, what was not promised uh, is promised. What was not originally promised is that there's no more crying or tears or pain anymore. That's what the future time is. That's what the future hope is. That's the future joy. That's what gets Christians out of the bed. And that's what empowers them, a future hope. And yet at the same time, that's what empowers mission, that the news has to spread, that there are answers why. Maybe not the micro level of where was the gentleman at a certain time and what caused him, what are the psychological factors in his family. Those are not answered, and we want to know those just like everybody else. And we want to be better stewards of how do we better love people so that we don't have more teens get in this kind of situation or 20-year-olds. Uh, and we want to love things, and we want to know those things, and we want to be good stewards of those things, and we want to be on mission. But even more than that, we want to share the good news. The good news is that things are changing. Despite what you hear on the news, things are changing. What, what is being undone by this world is being remade by God. That's the Christian faith, and that's what we believe. So we're going to talk about all that in communion. All that right there, all that I just said is right there in communion. Um, I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Open up your Bibles or your app to Luke chapter 22. We're going to go through it. First, we're going to talk about consuming His grace. And then we're going to talk about uh, serving His grace. Consuming His grace and serving His grace. I'm going to tell you right now, communion is the time is the place, is the event where we consume His grace and are consumed by His grace so much that we're moved to pass it along. Communion is where we are consumed by grace and so consumed by it that we are moved to pass along. That's what communion is. I do not believe, uh, like uh, some of our friends across the street might, that actually communion is where the blood and the body literally become the blood and body of Christ. Um, and so we don't have to worry about spilling a cup because we're worried about spilling the defaming the blood of Christ. Um, but I, I also want to, to say that communion is where we consume His grace. It's where we consume grace upon grace upon grace. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Let's go through the verses and we'll stop every once in a while and make comments. Actually, I'll just make the comments. How about that? And when the hour has come, he reclined at the table, and his apostle said to him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now stop right there. All right, what is it saying? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The word earnestly desired is usually translated lust. Now, there's no sin, and of course, that's not the context, and that's not really what's going on here, so we translate it earnestly desired, but it's the word lust. It's how strong it is. It is an over-the-top desire. 
It is a, almost an insatiable desire to be with someone. Uh, my mom, uh, the week before Thanksgiving, uh, went to the hospital. She's 78 years old. She's been in perfect health all of her life. All of her background, uh, all of her um, ancestors lived to be around in the hundreds often, you know, in the 90s at least, uh, except a few, you know, rogue family members that had the nerve to die early. And, uh, and yet she was in a situation which was all of a sudden a critical condition. And I was sitting here in Tennessee, and she's out in West Texas, and I was, I was dying to see her. I was dying to see her. And I just could not get out there soon enough. And I had to wait on certain things, had to wait for things to uh, fall up, you know, airlines and those kind of things. And finally when I got there, it was such a gift to be with her. Such a gift to be with her. And that's uh, what reminds me of uh, there are times when we're longing for someone, and that's exactly what's happening here with them and his disciples. He is longing to be with them. He's longing to be with them so much, it's like he's saying, tell your mama you're not going home for Turkey Day. You're spending it with me. Now, how would that have worked out if someone said to you, let's say you told your parents, I've been following this pastor around, uh, uh, this you know, guru, I mean, he's incredible. I've decided to be homeless for him. He's so good. And we're just traveling around telling people about, you know, the good news. And your parents are like, what? And, and by the way, Mom, I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving, for Turkey Day. Just celebrate it without me. I'm going to celebrate it with him. Now, that's exactly what's happening here. The Passover was a huge, even bigger than our Thanksgiving, huge family event. It's something you celebrated with your family. And what's happening here is he's basically saying, you tell your family, I am more important. And they do. And so they celebrate this Passover, and he desires them so much that he wants to celebrate it with them. Now, what would they do with this Passover? Well, at the Passover, they would look back to the past of how God has delivered them. Uh, there were four courses to Passover, and, um, and they had four different cups. And so I brought up here four different cups. Let's see here. I'm skipping ahead. It's all right. Yeah, let me go ahead and do this. Four different cups, all right? And they had four different courses, all right? And uh, so each cup means different things. How many of you have ever been to Passover Seder? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Passover. Okay, you've done this before. Uh, it comes from a, a time in uh, Scriptures where God makes four promises, Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. He makes four promises. The first one is, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. We call it the cup of sanctification or the course of sanctification. Sanctification means to set apart or to bring out one from amongst uh, another. And so that's the idea that the first thing and what they do is they look back about how God separated us as a unique race, as a unique people. All right? And then the second course, when they get to the second cup, it's the cup of deliverance. Uh, the second promise is, I will deliver you out of Egypt. And they talk about how God delivered and uh, and they, they reflect back on the bitterness of the time and the suffering as well. And then they look at how God has delivered them and they celebrate it and they read certain scriptures and they have certain rituals you would in a Passover Seder. When you get to the third cup, he says, I will redeem you with my power. That's the third promise. I will redeem you with my power. So it's the cup of redemption. And that's where you would serve the bread uh, as well as the wine. And then lastly uh, is a cup of restoration. I will take you as my people. You will be my people. I will take you as my people. And all that was uh, uh, past except for the cup of restoration, which was one day we're going to be fully in the kingdom. 
And so you, when you do the last cup, uh, you don't drink it. You leave it full. Okay, you drink the other ones, but you leave the fourth cup, the cup of restoration, full. Now, you need to know that because what Christ is saying here is he's saying, uh, before, uh, we're gonna, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the Passover Seder was all about our ancestors suffering in the past. Now he's saying it's not their suffering. This is about me. This is about my suffering. This meal is different than all other meals. It's about the one where I suffer. And so what we see here is we suddenly realize, hold on a second, there's some elements missing. As you read the rest of the text, you see some bread. You see some wine. Where's the lamb? It's kind of like us having a Thanksgiving dinner without turkey. I mean, like, it's turkey day, you know? There, the lamb. Why is the lamb significant? Because the lamb was killed way back in Egypt, right when they were about to be delivered. And uh, they would put the blood of the lamb over on the doorpost so that uh, the, when death passed by, they would be passed over, right? That's why they call it Passovers, because death would pass over. It wouldn't kill the firstborn child, right? And, and so the lamb gave up his life so that the child could continue to live, okay? Now, um, now there's another thing that's missing here is the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs were eaten to remind them of suffering. Well, now we know why there's no lamb mentioned. We know why there's no herbs mentioned. It's because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ himself is the one that suffers on our behalf, so there's no need to participate where we remember our suffering. So he starts immediately starts reinventing everything. Um, I think one of the things to remember here is that we have a broken world that suffers. Friday's events have reminded us of that over and over and again. And yet God enters into our suffer, suffering, doesn't he? He becomes a man. In fact, he really exceeds our suffering by unjustly dying on the cross. Uh, there's a book called Lament for a Son by a guy named Nicholas Walderstoff where his son dies in a climbing accident, and he wrote this. God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering world is to suffer. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. So suffering is down at the center of things, down deep where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world. For the love is meaning, and love suffers. Isn't that true? Love suffers. Someone that is really engaged with you at a time, what they do, they probably suffered with you. People that have loved you well, you've learned they enter in, they in, and they sacrifice themselves for you. They walk with you. And then he finishes up, and he says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. Sounds kind of poetic and kind of just weird and like whatever, dude. But think about that. The tears of God 
or the meaning of history? What has brought meaning? Well, in a postmodern world that doesn't necessarily believe in kind of a big story or meta narrative, um, in a world where like there is no meaning in life, you know, is where we tend to have philosophically a lot of people. All of a sudden, we realize if Jesus Christ was God incarnate and He did become man in the flesh, then all of a sudden we realize God cries. God cries for us. And God cries so much that He sent His only Son to die for us. The tears of God bring the meaning of history. Jesus Christ has brought complete meaning because it's not all suffering or grief that we find at communion. It's not. There is joy. Let's keep reading the the verses. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Certainly a confusing verse as you first look at it. And he took a cup. So we got one of four cups. We don't know which one. But he took a cup. And after he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I will tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten it, saying, This is the cup poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. And what's interesting here is we, we don't understand really what's kind of what's happening when we get to the cup and which cup are we talking about. Um, we also don't really understand what does he mean about the future thing. Well, think about what I just said. When he's saying the future, that he says, I'll tell you I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We know he's going to have a feast in the future. All right? Uh, Revelations 19.9 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. He also says in verse 18, I tell you from now on that you will not drink of the vine I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, I'm not going to be drinking this cup with you guys any longer, much longer. But there will be a future time. So what's he saying? This fourth cup, we're leaving it on the table. In the day to come, in the future, we will feast together. In a time when there's a promise that there will be no more crying or tears or pain anymore, we will feast. It is a time of joy. And so he comes, and he promises joy in the midst of sorrow. In the midst of suffering, he says, life is on its way. In the midst of death, he promises resurrection. And so he takes this, and he says, uh, this is my body. He doesn't say this is the manna which came from heaven, which is what they would do with the bread. And let's remember our ancestors who wandered in the wilderness And God rained down bread from heaven on them, the manna, uh, which literally means, what is this stuff? That's what that word manna actually means in the Hebrew. Uh, I learned that from the little Jesus storybook Bible that my friend over here was reading a minute ago. Uh, And uh, so, so what is this stuff? Well, Christ says, this is my body. This is my body. This is really what this is about. As our ancestors were utterly dependent upon God, so you shall be utterly dependent upon my sacrifice. You shall be utterly dependent upon me. And then he goes into the cup. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. So we've got two different ideas here. One is poured out for you. All right? Second one is new covenant. What does this mean? 
Well, in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol for God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, 15, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to take this cup filled with wine, drink it all the way down to the dregs, and that's a symbol to the people that you're prophesying, your people, of my wrath is upon you because of your sins. Well, he says, this cup is poured out for you. In other words, somebody else is drinking it, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He took upon God's wrath. This is uh, Isaiah 52 especially makes this really clear. He took upon God's wrath that while he did not deserve it, Christ himself took the punishments of the world upon himself, of all those who believe. He took their punishment. And God's justice was satisfied. And so when we get to this cup and that communion, we say, the cup here that we drink in remembrance of the wrath that Christ did on my behalf, it's a cup of joy. Why is that? Because God is not mad at me anymore. You know, I think a lot of times we get into situations where we just kind of get back to, well, if I wouldn't have done such and such, I would now have a better life, or God would bless me more. It's not the gospel at all. Uh, It's typical understanding, typical uh, religious world viewpoint, but whenever we go to communion, we drink it down saying, God's not mad at me anymore. He is not mad at me anymore. Christ himself took the punishment I deserve, and even in my sins, Christ himself has absolved my most heinous sins that I've committed. God loves me, and he's with me. He also says, this is the new covenant of my blood. Uh, If you want to learn a little more about that, go to Hebrews, uh, I think it's chapter 8, verse 7 through 13 or so. Uh, Hebrews 8 is where they're basically just quoting, he's mostly quoting from Jeremiah, actually. And um, in Hebrews 8, we learn about the new covenant. The new covenant is where God gives us new hearts. He makes us, he regenerates us. Through Jesus Christ, we have have new, we're a new creation where we're forgiven where we're redeemed, where God is with us and he walks with us. That's what the new covenant is all about. And so whenever we go to the cup, we realize God is not mad at me anymore. And we also realize I'm new, sheerly by grace. Not of anything I've done myself. It's a gift. It's a gift of Christ. And so when we look at communion, that's what we tend to think of. That's what we look at and that's what we see. Um, that we see the past of our ancestors, and, and sure, I mean, we certainly would join that of a time of deliverance, but we also see a second exodus, an exodus where Christ himself redeems. More specifically, we see the past and our past and our sins are present, and if we believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave, that we are redeemed and are being redeemed, and we look at the future, and we see, and we smile in the midst of our sorrows, and knows, know that God is going to walk with us all the way to that future, but that future one day is going to be better than ever the past ever was even intended to be in the garden, because there's a promise that was never made. No more crying or pain anymore. Uh, Brothers Karamazov, we were talking about in the, uh, in the car this morning, there's a quote there that's a classic quote from there uh, that um, 
where the main character says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it suffice it for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments and the atonement of all the crimes of humanity for all the blood they've shed that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Now, that's a faith statement. (laughs) That is a serious faith statement. To justify all that's happened, to justify Friday, to justify all the sin that's been passed down in my family and that I'm now trying to make right? To justify it? Well, if there's a promise of no more tears or pain or crying anymore, I think he's got a good point. Communion is where we consume grace. Just consume grace. It is the place where we enter into the sorrow of Christ and experience the joy of him. It's where we consume grace. It's a gift. And each time we partake of it, we're reminded of the past, present, and future. It is also where we are so consumed by His grace that we give it to others. Now, I'm really thankful for the disciples because they were not at all um, um, great model disciples. They were real guys. uh, Screwed up, messed it up. Um, got it wrong. And this is exactly what happens right here in Luke 14. Let's keep reading. Let's talk about serving His grace, not just communing on consuming His grace, but serving it. But behold, the hand of Him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes and has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's been betrayed. Now we think, of course, rightly so. Who's the betrayer? Somebody? Judas, all right? The jerk. The jerk is at the table, and he's ticking me off. That's basically what he's saying. You know, woe to the man by whom he's betrayed you because you're, gonna, you're turning me in. My question is, is it only Judas that's the betrayer? Is it only Judas? Certainly he was, I mean, he's the prime guy. I mean, he's called the betrayer. Um, John makes that clear. Look at verse 23. And they began to question, other, question one another which of them could be who was going to do this. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, I tend to look at verse, that last verse and think somebody just stood up and said, you know, Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. You know, me, I'm the greatest. Well, come on. I mean, nobody really does that. So what's happening? What's happening is... All of a sudden, there's mystery. Somebody here's a betrayer. They start looking at each other, and then they start debating. I can never do that. I can never do that. And we do the same thing. We go to church, and we hear about somebody that's had an affair. We're like, I could never do that. Really. Maybe not right now. Maybe your marriage doesn't exist right now. That's easy to say. <laughs> Maybe your marriage is doing great right now. That's easy to say. Um, 
I think we will, our first response was to Friday, which is actually very likely. It's really very probable. I could never do that. I could never cold-blooded kill somebody before. Now, I, I think that's, I hope that's true for the majority of the <laughs> majority in the room. Uh, but what we start doing is, um, and, and that is true. I mean, uh, that's not going to happen with the great majority of all of us. We have our sanity today, don't we? We have the people loving us in our lives today. Um, we haven't been overcome with fantasies or things today. Um, no, I still am pretty pushed to say I could be him. I'm really pushed. But really what's in my heart is um, I'm greater than that. Now, what it looks like in everyday life is, oh, you know, I mean, I'm a pastor, so my sermon's better than his. Or, uh, you know, my kid is better than his. Or, um, you know, my spouse is better than his. Or whatever. That's what it looks like in today, but I'm still doing that all the time. I'm trying to gain my significance by establishing myself as the greater. And when I get depressed, I usually think, yeah, I'm worse than he or she is. The thing is, who are they sitting at the table with? They're sitting with Christ. I mean, this is not a good place to have a discussion about who's the greatest in front of Christ. Uh, and he makes that clear. Next verse. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what? You guys can have all this discussion all you want. I'm going to serve you, and I am serving you. I'm going to serve with you more deeply than you realize in the next three days. You're going to be amazed at how much I serve you. I'm not pretending to be the greatest. But the obvious thing is, he clearly is. In fact, he so much is, so much higher above all the other disciples that we really can't really contrast Judas with the other disciples without saying they're all betrayers. They're all seeking after their own way, just like you and me. We are sinners that are selfishly putting ourselves over one another, which means communion doesn't just have to do with me and God. It has to do with me, God, and everybody else. Because what's he saying? Are you going to serve one another as I've served? Are you going to encourage one another to commune with me as I have done with you? Communion's about me, God, and everybody else. It's not just about me and God. I want to go to a verse in 1 Corinthians. It's a verse that we often quote uh, when we're explaining communion. And we say, don't just get up and just pretend you're okay and have communion. That's basically what we're saying. Don't do that. But this is, uh, and, and I want to look at those verses a little more clearly. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, we often will talk about that. So what do we do? Well, let's have my moment of introspection at church, 
and I'm going to just see if there's any junk in me. I'm going to try to get right, and then I'm going to go to communion. What's the body? Is it talking about my body? Body? Well, no, of course, it's talking about the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? Well, it is the physical body of Christ, so it is appropriate for us to make sure that we are repentant before we show up and uh, act like a hypocrite, that we're really okay and we're partaking in communion when we really aren't, right? So it's good to be repentant as you come to the table because that just makes these cups, uh, this cup of redemption, so much more sweet that God's not mad at me. You know, I've just repented. God's not. And so we should do that. But the body of Christ is also called the what? The church. Let's read it again. Let me read it back. Go back through it. Let me substitute that word. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the church eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, what's happening? Well, in 1 Corinthians, what's happening is they have all these factions. You know, they have the selfishness going on. And one group is actually cutting in line, or they're eating more, and some people aren't even getting communion, and other people are being nasty to each other and all this stuff. Now, certainly, it's an environment where love, like here, is the highest thing. So it probably doesn't look like, you know, people tripping each other and, you know, all that stuff on the way to communion. It's probably not what it looks like. Uh, it's probably under the surface, but there's still factions. So what's he saying? You hypocrites, how dare you come to the communion of the one who died to give himself for you and not turn around and pass along grace to one another? So this is what happens. You know, uh, my wife and I would be sitting. Uh, if we just had a fight, what do we do? Do we really stop and say, let's not do communion right now? Let's go in this back room. Let's, let's start talking. Because we're coming to the table of Christ, and I've been a jerk. And I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But we don't do that. What do we do? We get up as a couple and we partake because we've just discerned that communion is just about me and God. Or you've got a guy over here that's broken up with a girl, and there's this faction, and there's this junk going on, and, and, uh, and selfish ambition. They both go to communion. They partake it. Why? Because we erroneously believe that communion is just about me and God and my little moment. And that's just not true. God calls us to be a redemptive force, and so we shouldn't bring judgment on ourselves by being a hypocrite and going to the table when Matthew has said, you need to leave your worship at the altar and go and be reconciled and then come back and continue in worship. Does that mean sometimes you could be uh, not get up and partake communion because you know somebody is somewhere else, a business partner or, or a neighborhood friend or, or, and be reconciled? Does that mean that a few people might think, oh, well, gosh, you know, something's up there. <laughs> there. They're off today. Yeah. So who are you living for? Uh, communion is about consuming His grace and be so overpowered that we are, pass along that grace to others. We're doing. Let me ask you two questions in closing. Two questions in closing. Uh, first one is, um, actually, I don't even know where I am anymore. I just need the questions. Oh, yeah, I know where I'm going. First question, if legacy stopped serving communion, would it make any difference in your life? 
really. I mean, I have not scratched the surface on the amount of reflections there are on communion. And after reading this myself, I'm like, you know what? I don't know if it makes that big of a difference in my life. It's a churchy religious thing. Some of us come here, so worship's good. Worship's very good. That's good. Some of us come here because we think the center of the worship service is the sermon, because we appreciate someone speaking truth to us and having time to reflect on that. Listen, that's great. Um, But historically, communion has been the center of the worship gathering. Why? Because people are desperate for His grace. You know, I think that we're wrong this time of year as Christians to say, to bash consumerism. Materialism, certainly. I mean, we are materialistic. But, you know, I I don't agree with us being, uh, of us saying we shouldn't be consumers. Can I tell you something? We are. And God made us to be consumers. In the garden, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, said to eat of any tree except for that one. Eat, consume. When we come celebrate communion, what do we do? We're consuming. Uh, people up in Connecticut right now, they're asking all the questions of why. Why? Because they're hungry. We are consumers. We were made to be consumers. And we're always trying to get something to fill the hunger inside of us. That's consuming. The question is, for you and me, are we consuming the best? God himself, his grace, his love. Are we consuming the best? Are we feasting on the best? Are we content with macaroni and cheese of the world? (laughs) So, if legacy quit serving communion, would it make any difference in your life? I hope soon you're starting to think, no, this 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 is pretty key. This is central to our worship. Second question, if you started um, practicing communion daily, how would it change your perspective and your relationships? I um, don't know if you know this, but um, I don't, well, I don't think communion was ever intended to be uh, just a church gathering kind of thing. Why? He says, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do this remember me. When's that? Well, for us, that's three times a day. Communion happens multiple times a day. And every time we eat, we're remember, we remember we're hungry for you, and you filled us with Jesus Christ and his love. Praise God. When we say grace, right, which is a great term to describe our prayer, uh, really, if we went all the way with that, it would be about breaking bread, communion, reminding one another of the gospel. If we started doing that uh, two or three times a day, can you imagine what difference it would make in your perspective? All day long, you're thinking, Jesus Christ died for me. God loves me. He's not angry at me anymore. Can you imagine what difference it would make? And can you imagine what difference it would make in your relationships? You're sitting across the table from someone that you've had a conflict with. You're like, I'm coming to communion. 
I'm coming to Christ right now. I've got to be authentic, and we've got to work this out because I'm called to be a reconciler. Imagine what a difference that would make. Ah, be fantastic. I encourage you um, to start doing this, to, to start actually practicing it, to actually start thinking about it, to praying it, to when you're at your family table, to, to break the bread that happens to be at the table, uh, at the restaurant. Get your Coke and say, look what he's done. You know, this is just a visual display of me consuming his grace upon grace upon grace in order for me to live and to be a servant and to love the people across the table from me. The word Eucharist, uh, which is another word we describe communion, has the uh, middle section charis in it. Charis is the Greek word for Greek. It is the word Eucharist, though, as we usually translate it, thanksgiving, but it's thanksgiving for grace. And when you give grace or when you say grace, really you are thankful grace, because that's what a communion is about. It's about consuming His grace and being so consumed by it, you want to give it to others. Let's pray.